Hello and a warm welcome to another in our series of podcasts exploring the living in love and faith vision. In this podcast, we'll address the Church of England's present day contribution to the essential building blocks of a functioning community. We'll discuss how our unique human identities and sexualities can positively contribute to the bricks and mortar of a greater society. And we'll put it all in the context of maintaining the church's mission to treasure and affirm each individual. My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. Recently, I was struck by some very telling words from the former Chief Rabbi of Great Britain and the Commonwealth, Lord Jonathan Sachs. In a recent interview, Lord Sachs uh, expressed the opinion that the West is in dark times. As a society, he said, we have lost sight of the we, the common good, because we have been seduced by the eye of individualism. Now, he said that before the dark times of COVID-19 began to absorb us and to shape even more our thinking and actions surrounding the common good. To take this discussion further, I have with me four guiding members of the Living in Love and Faith initiative as we ask, how do we learn together? The Right Reverend Dr Joe Bailey Wells is the Bishop of Dorking. As an Old Testament scholar, her previous ministry appointments have included various Cambridge teaching posts, as well as seeing service at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina. The Reverend Dr Sean Doherty is a tutor in Christian ethics. Last year, he was appointed Principal of the Church of England Theological Training Establishment, Trinity College, Bristol. Before that, Sean was part of the ministry team on a council estate in Kensington, West London, coping with the aftermath of the Grenfell fire. Dr Eva John was born in Finland. Forensic study and application of such is her lifeblood. An organic chemist by training, Eva has worked in a quartet of British theological colleges and is now the enabling officer of the Living in Love and Faith project. The Reverend Marcus Green is an Oxford University history graduate and the rector of three rural parishes in North Oxfordshire. Previously to that, Marcus served the church in West and South Wales and city centre Oxford. And Marcus is the only member of the group who has appeared on and won the TV quiz show The Weakest Link, unless the other members of the group are keeping their media secrets quiet. Marcus has been a member of the Biblical Studies Thematic Working Group as part of the Living in Love and Faith initiative. So let's take that quote from Lord Sachs. We have lost sight of the we, the common good, because we've been seduced by the eye of individualism. How do you all personally respond to that? Marcus? In the debates that we have in Living in Love and Faith when we're talking about sexuality in the church, I think one of the really difficult starting points for us is that lots of us come with very strong opinions and years of talking through these things. One of the difficulties is... I am not the end of the story. Uh, I am not the whole world. What we've all had to do in this story, and actually I think it's one of the really great things, is not to deny that story, that background, that everything, but just to realise the world is a bigger place. 
I don't know. I'm not going to speak for anyone else. It's helped me grow. Now, that's fascinating. Um, almost a case of on-the-job training. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm really convinced of what I believe. I'm really convinced of where I come from. But if I'm convinced I've got the whole answer, uh, I think I'm on a hiding to nothing. Joe, I'm surprised, Stuart, that you hear Marcus talk about growing. I think I'm not interested in living a day without growing. And growing includes learning. It includes growing in in loving God with all my mind as well as with all my heart and soul and strength. This whole process is nothing if it's not about growing and learning. And of course, that must mean changing. It's fascinating to me that you asked the Jonathan Sachs question for a, a, a work whose subtitle is about identity and relationships. On the one hand, identity is assumed, I think, in our modern day society to be an individual thing. And relationships obviously involves others. But I think one of the areas I've learnt as we've gone along is that if individually we're made in the image of God, so the image of God is a corporate thing as well as an individual thing. And, you know, if Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, I think I want to say, I relate, therefore I am. I don't think my individual identity ultimately is what matters before God. Eva, leading on from that, how how do you assess And then also, I suppose, exercise within the group, the the idea, the Lord Sachs idea of the the common good, the we working together. It's funny, the first thing that sprang to mind when Joe was talking about I, we and identity is that it's fairly Western to think of identity as being about me. I think probably in other places, people identify themselves with family, with tribe. You know, it, it's quite different. Uh, and that's quite a good corrective to our understanding of who we are. It's not individual. But in terms of your second question about how that works out in loving, love and faith, it's so tantalizing to think that, you know, we, we, we can do things on our own and think things through on our own. And one of the wonderful experiences of working on living in love and faith is, you know, you might write something or say something or produce something. And then, of course, you have to invite loads of other people to comment on it, to invite their reactions to it. And inevitably, once you get over the kind of wave of, oh my goodness, so many people have responded with so many thoughts, you suddenly realize it's getting better and better. And that is so much more deeply joyful than doing something on your own. Sean. For me, one of the most uh, exciting things I've done as a Christian uh, is uh, talking to people with whom I disagree. And in particular, a couple of years ago, with respect to the Church of England's processes of discussing uh, human sexuality, we had the shared conversations. One of the comments that came through that, at least that I made, and other, I heard others voice it, was, this is so transformative and helpful, but uh, it's only a very small number of us that are getting to participate in it, and it would be great if other people could have the opportunity of, of doing so as well. So I think one of the part of the promise of the living in love and faith process is providing a resource for a what much larger number of people to access that conversation and to participate in it. 
In the Learning Together section of the Living in Love and Faith book, there is a quiet mission statement. It is the hope and intention that the resources will offer a humble, informed and respectful engagement in order to discern the mind of Christ. Joe Bailey Wells, learning to discern the mind of Christ. Now, the Church of England's teaching is that the Bible is the Church's unique authority when it comes to learning about the Christian faith. But to remind us, what is the Bible? Fundamentally, I think the Bible is the Word of God, but equally, the Bible is a set of 66 books written over at least two millennia, written by human hands, slightly in the process that Ava has described with the Living in Love and Faith resources, uh, have passed through many other hands in editorial terms. And now we have a set of, a collection of books that present to us a multifaceted Word of God, which is complicated to read and understand and therefore requires interpretation. It requires many different hearts and minds and sets of eyes to read it, to wrestle with it, and then to work out what God is saying and indeed what the mind of Christ might be. As an Old Testament scholar, what would you say to critics who take the line that, well, the Bible is merely a fascinating ragbag of ancient documents, but not much help really? when it comes to navigating the complex societal changes of our day with its accompanying moral ambiguities. Stuart, I'll admit that sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I think there's a ragbag in there that needs some sorting out. Actually, that's partly what draws me in. It's complicated. It requires wrestling. But at best, what the Old Testament is, is some stories of people from the past who have wrestled with scenarios in their circumstances in order to listen to God. And the way in which they've wrestled and what it is they've heard are helpful in terms of both shaping the way we might go about it, but also in terms of hearing the word of God to them might equally work out to be the word of God to us. So trusting the word of God to do its stuff in the individual. I, I want to say the word of God is alive. So it's not just God spoke in the past tense to those people over there, but what God said in the past to those people over there speaks again afresh to me in some shape or form. And it will speak again to future generations where I have no idea what their questions to God will be, but because God's word is alive and God's spirit takes God's word to God's people, uh, then it, it speaks afresh. And in, in Engaging with those stories corporately, not just individually, both I and we, then we hear God's voice afresh. Marcus? I think the Bible's a gift and a wonderful gift. There are all sorts of ways that we then open gifts up and see what we can do with them. And different parts of the same gift are going to have different relevance or joy uh, for different people. And story is a fantastic thing 
because the Bible's absolutely chock-block, full of story, uh, and different stories resonate with different people. Jesus constantly works with story and tells stories about people, uh, and then um, the Gospels are full of stories of Jesus meeting with different people. Uh, And those stories show that God loves people, and it shows how it worked for those people in that situation and guides us to go, oh, I get it, like that. And then we let those stories become ours. Sean. Joe has already mentioned the diversity of of scripture. I think one of the reasons why scripture is so diverse is because human experience is so diverse. How could it be otherwise? You know, if, if theology and if scripture is about God reaching down to rescue people, then just as people are diverse, then scripture and God's interaction with us is going to be uh, diverse. One of the challenges though I find is that we love false dichotomies in so many areas of life you know the bible is either God's book or it's a human book whereas you know that's a classic example where I'm you know many people would want to I hope say or I would want to say um it's it's both it's really essential that you say that it's it's both and I think another false dichotomy I find when I'm then teaching is people have a sort of assumption that if you emphasise this diverse range of ways that Jesus interacts with people, then um, then it leads you just into sort of a relativistic, um, there's, there's no such, there's no real truth, there's no such thing as the answer that we can look for. Whereas it seems to me that Jesus had remarkable clarity about what he thought was right in the different situations that he uh, you know engaged with people so for example the rich young man is a classic example of someone that he was very challenging to towards and saying you know laying it on the line saying you've got to give everything up in order to to follow me um but then he interacted with other people so for example famously the the woman at the well in a very very different way Uh, So, you know, Jesus had his kind of beliefs, I suppose, shaped, of course, in turn by his scripture, by what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. But that didn't stop him from being engaged with real people as they really were. Ever. One of the reasons I'm a Christian is that the Bible tells it how it is. You can use the phrase that the Bible is sometimes a mirror of our humanity. It, exactly as you described, it tells you, you know, the bad stuff as well as the good stuff, the glory of, of how some people have responded to situations, but also the absolute desperate depravity of the way people behave. What I love about that is that there is nothing in the world around us that isn't encompassed in God, as it were. Um, We don't need to deny reality in order to have faith. On the contrary, uh, the Bible tells us that faith is, you know, in the midst of all of this. God is in the midst of all this mess. And so the messiness and the complexity of the scriptures is kind of why I believe, actually. And things like the stories... um, They subvert my human desire for separating out right and wrong, for debating issues out there. They suddenly speak in a way that nothing else can speak into who I am and and, uh, reach parts that perhaps reason can't reach. Reading through the Psalms, for example, I was just struck recently by Psalm 51 is um, attributed to David 
unlikely that it was really written by David, but that's another story. But attributed to, to David after he um, supposedly committed adultery and arranged for the bumping off of the, um, you know, the, the, the woman in question's um, current husband. Um, and then Psalm 52, the very next one, is David supposedly protesting against the mistreatment that he's experiencing at the hands of another. So you've got David as perpetrator in one breath and David as victim in the next. And the reality is that I identify with both of those moments in his own life and a whole lot more besides at different times in my own experience. Marcus? I I love um, Matthew, the tax collector, Um, someone who uh, people are regarding as an outsider and unacceptable. Um, And Jesus spots him and says, you're mine. And I guess that as a, a gay person in the church, uh, that sense of outsider whom Jesus loves is really, really precious. He's loved so much. He, you know, his words are words by which we know Jesus. Uh, and that just feels really precious. Plus, um, Jesus dines with his friends and uh, other people look from the outside and go, well, that's not really the done thing. But Jesus dines with his friends. And uh, I love all of that. Sean Doherty, turning to you and drawing on your academic discipline, the study of ethics, i.e. moral principles that govern a person's behaviour, how is teaching and learning related to behaviour and personal disciplines? Because I know that you've had to grapple with this personally in your own life. As a, uh, I would say, same-sex attracted rather than gay, but uh, there was a time in my life when I would have said that I was gay. Um, but as a gay Christian, I I was fortunate and privileged that I didn't experience that feeling of being an outsider in the church. So I was um, uh, always made to feel really welcome. And for me, welcoming you know, we we talk quite a bit about welcoming church circles, by which we often mean we smile at people and offer them a cup of instant coffee, you know, at the end of the service or something. But in fact, for me, welcoming meant a belonging, it meant participation, it meant that I had, you know, a real, you know, kind of real, a real part to play. And I really felt that I was able to contribute within the church. I think I, think I, I want to agree with an awful lot of what Sean just said. Uh, and say a very important point on on welcoming the church that instant coffee is never welcoming um, <laughs> but but also that um, it's uh, I really agree that it's it's good to be critical uh, and uh, of, um, of of what's put before us both as welcome and also as the sort of existing teaching of what the church has because I think often we present things that here this is this is where we are and we kind of talk about it. But, um, you know, the seven last words of the church have always done it this way before uh, have to be heard in two different ways. One is sometimes they're put forward as we've always done it this way before. End of conversation. Um, But putting those words in a different way, we've always done it this way before presents a, a different future. Leading on from that, then, is the LLF project a pleading in many ways, for the church to gather again, to regroup and say, this is how we're going to move forward collectively. We've always said from the very beginning that the both the process and the resources that we're producing through Living in Love and Faith is not about setting a course, a, a direction for the church. It's about creating 
a dynamic learning space in which we listen to God together. And who knows what God has to say to us. Uh, it might be about sexuality and identity and marriage. It might be about other stuff as well. But it's about creating that space through humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves enough to really hear each other's stories, to really listen to different perspectives, whether it's on the Bible, um, to listen to science and other disciplines and so on. But its its goal is really to listen to God, to hear God together, and to be allow ourselves to be transformed, not presupposing what that change is going to be. Who knows how we need to be changed as individuals, as groups within the church, or as as a church as a whole. That thing about being changed, I think, is also what produces real fear in people. Because there's a sense for those who are really clear what God is saying to the church in these areas, that they're letting go of certainty and entering the unknown. Uh, and I, I think that is true. I don't, I, I don't think I would wish to describe it any other way, except that Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow without telling us what the destination is. That is the story of, of our faith. That is our destiny. There's actually nowhere better to be. But, but I can see it's terrifying. There's the um, kind of the immediate question um, of uh, sexual ethics, which has prompted the, you know, the, the living in love and faith process. But then there's also the question of um, what do we do about the fact that we seem to disagree so deeply and intractably about sexual ethics and even in that second question there is then a whole range of different views about what we should do about our different views as it as it were so I think there's uh, Joe was talking about the um the 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 fear of going into uncertainty and as it as it were of changing our minds um, for myself, I haven't particularly changed my mind through the living in love and faith process, although I've certainly learned new things and um, had my understanding deepened in all sorts of ways, for which I'm very grateful. Where I think I found it um, uh, really fruitful, though, has been in terms of that second set of questions, uh, in terms of thinking, OK, given that we disagree about this, what on earth are we going to do as a church about this? And and therefore, learn the learning for me is not just about sex and sexuality. The learning is has been about um, church, about disagreement, about dialogue, about how do we cope with difference? Some psychologists have observed that our representation on Instagram and Twitter and so on leads us to display glorious forgeries of ourselves, a kind of psychological Botox. How does that then feed into all this and affect our relationship with God? Being real is fundamental to Christian faith. I have to be who I am in Christ. Um, I don't have to be who uh, Joe is or Eva or Sean. I can't be. Um, and there's no point in me actually being a pretend version of who I am. I have to be me. The people who know me will tell you that that's a bit of a fairground ride. But it's what it is. And we have to tell the truth. 
you have to start with the truth because if you know the truth the truth will set you free um and uh if we pretend if we put this fake version of ourselves up this slightly better version this slightly more palatable version of ourselves there we are going to get nowhere and in our conversation and in our learning together and through this process um at times the most difficult moments but actually the the moments of which we have developed and grown the most together have been when we have been most truthful most honest and being open c.s lewis uh, how can we see face to face till we have faces conversely that truth and openness that's required comes within the parameters of a covenant, a contract, which comes with strictures and warnings about what happens if we break that contract with God. I disagree with you on the subject of contract and covenant. I think they're two really different things, Stuart. Covenant is about promise. It's about me vesting my interests, my trust in it in that to which I commit. Contract is a legal thing that sort of is a damage limitation exercise. This isn't that. Relationships are about the giving of self and a covenant is about a, you know, a permanent sense of, of, of the giving of self that is also public. That kind of commitment is, is a beautiful thing and a costly thing. Yes, it requires discipline. Yes, there are problems if we fail but it's the vowed life, whether that's about marriage, whether that's about civil union, whether that's about the monastic religious life in the traditional sense. When we make some promises, yes, we're setting the bar really high for the way in which we're seeking to live in, in, in love and faith, in loyalty. Uh, and there are consequences when we fail, but it, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> well, I'm going to agree with what you said, Joe, but, but go on to say that covenant is about relationship. And, and it's a two-way relationship, a, a, a covenant. It's a two-way promise. And one of the things about being honest and truthful in a two-way relationship is it has to be a two-way honesty and a two-way trust. And one of the things about all of us involved in this journey, and particularly actually about LGBT people in the church, is a two-way relationship of trust and honesty. We have to have a safe space for that to happen. And one of the difficulties that, that, that we've got is that that space hasn't always been terribly, terribly safe. And some of us don't find it always terribly, terribly space, safe these days. Trust is built where people risk vulnerability. Amen. So, you know, when somebody risks saying something to me, uh, risks a lack of safety in order to be honest, then suddenly that builds a depth of relationship and an excitement in terms of getting to know them. But it is risky. That's a risky moment, Joe. It is really risky. It, it, I, I get really worried when people talk about the lack of safe space. And yet, in my experience engaging with God, I wouldn't necessarily call Very true. space. You know, when Moses sees the burning bush, he's terrified. And God says, take off your shoes, you know, asks him to sort of to, to undress, to be a little bit more vulnerable in order to listen. And then later on, Moses says, and who the heck are you calling me to do this, God? You know, they're, they're getting to know each other because because it isn't safe. But in order to make it safe, 
And so it's that determination to keep going in the conversation, even when it might hurt, and yet there might be a breakthrough. It becomes safe because they keep going then, doesn't it? That's, it develops, they develop that relationship and it keeps going. And I think that point that we had earlier about how is this for everyone is because we keep going. Inclusion is not when one party feels safe. Inclusion is when everybody feels safe. Or the same level of unsafety. Yes. But excitement okay. about keeping going. But I don't think life with God is safe. And I think if it were, I wouldn't be half as excited about it. It wouldn't have transformed me to the extent it wouldn't be the journey it is. Ever. I was just going to make a small comment, which goes back to our I, we thing, is we often think of a covenant between two people or two parties. And of course, the original covenant, the covenant, is between God and his people. And I do wonder if if we need to think more about how we are covenanted to one another in the church. By one spirit, we are all baptised into one body. And so it's it's the Holy Spirit who has baptised us into one body. It's not a, the church isn't um, a membership organisation in the classic sense where you opt in um, and it's a pure act of autonomy. It's something, as it were, that to some extent has been done to you. So that's why, in a way, uh, I, I completely agree with Joe and Marcus in their very nuanced dialogue there about safety. One of the reasons why it can never be completely safe is because the Holy Spirit is there. And the Holy Spirit isn't safe either, but he's the one that's joined us into into one body. So in a sense, the covenant is, I would want to say, Eva, is not even the covenant we have between one another in the church is not even of our own making. It's something that's been done to us as an act of grace, which is why we're stuck with each other. And one of the things I think God is therefore wants to do is, um, well, it's sort of if it's Ephesians 2, it's 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 more glorious for God that he has brought the irreconcilable together. Now, that doesn't mean in this case, with respect to sexuality, it's a nice, neat, oh, let's all just agree to disagree. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. What I am suggesting is we're stuck with each other. Therefore, what do we do about it? About the fact that we have this profound disagreement is not a question we can duck. There are people on all sides of the debate who will have things to say um, where they won't like things. And, um, and, and the challenge has been sometimes to not second guess those voices. We are here to help the church grow. We are here to help the church think and learn. And that's our challenge. What would you in your roles as educators, uh, as a bishop, uh, as clergy, as academics, want to say to people who resist or fear learning together in the way that LLF invites? I'd want to say that even from the most sort of conservative point of view of saying, I'm absolutely sure that I know what the Bible says about this issue, you have a responsibility to test what you believe uh, against what the Bible says. And it's right to be challenged by new ways of thinking. It doesn't mean that you'll end up agreeing with them, but as it were, you do have a responsibility to engage with them. I would say, Stuart, that it takes the whole body of Christ, the whole church, to begin to understand the whole word of God. And this process attempts to bring 
differing sides on these issues, differing factions to a point where they might better be able to listen to each other and understand each other's points of view. Now, I don't know where that will take us collectively, but I suspect it will take it, it will take us to a new place. I'm, I, I'm reminded of Mark chapter two, the story of the healing of the paralytic where they lower the chap through the ceiling and the people that end up paralysed, if you like, I think the word is amazed, are the scribes, the people who didn't need healing, the people who thought they were fine. And that word in the Greek, uh, what is it, existemi, talks about them being displaced, being taken to a new place, being taken beyond themselves. And of course, that's true of the paralysed man as well. I hope this will take us all beyond ourselves to a new place in Jesus. I don't know what that is. I look forward to finding out. I I know that people are fearful, um, but perfect love drives out fear. And so we have to live in love and faith and hope. And we have to put fear to one side. Um, God loves us and we are called to love each other. And fear sometimes is a natural and powerful thing. But as Christians, it's not where we're called to live. So we've got to live where we're called to live. First and foremost, we need to love one another and we need to really demonstrate that love. It needs to be a palpable love for those people who who fear this and and that fear is visceral sometimes and it's a fear that has the right motivation it 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 fears people ending up further away from god rather than drawing closer to god so a love that really understands that fear and for for those of us for example who have children i mean we've all experienced that fear uh, of letting you know our children go out into the big wide world of controversy and all sorts of different ways of thinking and being. But in the end, we have to bring that fear to Jesus. He is the one who's holding us. And so somehow through our love to communicate that and liberate each other, because we all have fears. It's not just those other people who have fears. We all have fears. To close our discussion then, Nelson Mandela famously said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. We've been talking about change a fair deal. LLF is about education, so is the one change that you'd like this learning together to achieve? Sean? My hope would be that the many people that I encounter who have kind of what I would call instincts in one way or another, but who have never really thought I, I in either direction, thought those instincts through, that they would really grapple with scripture for themselves and work out what they really think the Bible says about it. Eva? I guess one of my hopes is for the church as a body that somehow... Um, perhaps pre-coronavirus, you know, we've been a very divided, polarised society. And I guess my hope would be that somehow the church 
could in the way that we engage with one another, in the way that we humble ourselves to learn from one another and from God, the way that we learn to not just live with difference, but appreciate difference. We might be servants of God, a testimony to, to the glory of God. Joe, I hope as a result of LLF, we will all have our imagination stretched to discover how deep and wide is the love of God, that it's bigger than what I previously knew, even if I thought I knew it all. Marcus. For some people, this is such an obvious thing. It's just a non-question at all. But for others, it's a really important thing. And it's learning to see the person in front of you as an equal human being, equally made in the image of God, equally loved by God. If, if we can do that, we have gained a gift beyond price. Thank you for listening to this podcast and my thanks to Joe Bailey-Wells, Sean Doherty, Eva John and Marcus Green. Next up, we'll be considering the science of gender, sexual orientation, LGBT plus inclusivity within the church and exploring further what could be the biblical view on these most contemporary of issues. Please don't forget to rate and review this podcast, tell your pals and help spread the word. And for more supporting material, that can be found at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye. Thanks for listening and stay with us. <laughs>